0: All right then, Victorplasm episode 71, Ombre and Shadow by Patricia A. McKillip. So after a couple of quite long titles, I thought I'd wrap up the Fantasy City sequence with something a bit shorter, which is Ombre and Shadow by Patricia A. McKillip. And my imprint comes in the Fancy Masterworks series. In fact, I've got three Patricia McKillip books, and they all come in the Fantasy Masterworks series. Two of the others, The Forgotten Beast of Eld and The Riddle Master of Head, were published in the 70s when she was in her 20s. Um, Umbria and Shadow was published around 2002, and so it was nearly 30 years older. Uh, the revamped imprint of fantasy masterworks from 2013 onwards uh, features some introductions by enthusiastic famous authors, and in this case, it's Lisa Tuttle, uh, who writes in the first couple of paragraphs this quote. The very name Umbria, the setting for Patricia A. McKillop's world fantasy ward-willing novel, evokes the Latin word for shadow, Umbra. And, although we are told it is the oldest, richest, most beautiful and most powerful city in the world, the first inhabitants we meet, the child heir to the throne and the tavern keeper's beautiful daughter, are huddled in the shadows of grief and danger. Grief, because the Prince of Ombria, father of the child, lover of the woman, is dying. Danger, because upon his death the sinister Black Pearl will move to consolidate her power by killing, if she can't control, anyone who might stand in her way. She has already managed to delay her own death for many decades by magical means and there seems no limit to what she can do with the aid of magic purchased from the sorceress Fey. So we're going to talk about ancient sorcery, a shadowy city, courtly intrigue, poison, fairy tales, all in about 291 pages of fairly widely spaced text, so it's more like 200 pages in old money. Um, and it's also not part of a trilogy. It's not a lot of modern fantasy you can point to that does that and it kind of renews my faith in that genre for for a number of reasons. So as always I'm going to do a synopsis then I'm going to make a few remarks on the themes and how you can plunder those for role-playing and then I've got a couple of points of further reading at the end. Here we go. Okay, the setting. The setting is Ombria, the most beautiful, richest, and oldest city in the world. Whilst we know there's a world outside, you know, there's talk of ships and pirates and other nations, this is where the action happens. And as suggested by the title, Ombria has a shadow side, which is alternately called the shadow city and the underworld. So there's connotations of both past and death, and it's mentioned in this quote in the first chapter. The shadow city of Ombria is as old as Ombria. Some say it is a different city completely, existing side by side with Ombria in a time so close to us that there are places, streets, gates, old houses, where one time fades into the other, one city becomes the other. Others say both cities exist in one time, this moment, and you walk down through both of them each day, just as, walking down a street, you pass through light and shadow and light. Aesthetically, the underworld is full of remnants of the past, including ghosts, old forgotten streets, derelict houses full of rubbish, roofs overgrown with moss and ivy, and, and so on. So, you've got to bear in mind that we have two locations in the story. We have the world above, where all the politics happen, and then there's the underworld, where all the magic is. So, moving on to characters, we have three point-of-view characters. Our first character is Lydia, the concubine of Royce Greeve, the dead prince of Umbria. In the first chapter, she's immediately cast out of the palace by the scheming Domino Pearl. This is the Black Pearl. And she has to make her way back to her father's tavern, the thorn And Ombria is a dangerous place at night, so she's not expected to survive, but she avoids being molested by faceless urchins by casting her jewels behind her for them to squabble over, and then throws herself on her father's mercy. The second character is Mag, who's the waxling of a sorceress, or so she's been told. Uh, she, she was... Uh, formed of wax to do the bidding of the sorceress Fay, And she's our connection between the world above, where the intrigue happens, and the world below, Ombria's underworld, where her mistress dwells. She's a character who can go everywhere, and in doing so spies on several of the main characters, and has possibly the most holistic view of the whole plot. And then the third character is Duke and Grieve, bastard son of the late prince. And he's your typical loner character, rejecting formal roles at court, handy in a street fight, likes to make charcoal sketches all day, Crucially, he's one of the only two characters sympathetic to Royce's heir, Kyle Grieve, who is still a child, the other character being Lydia. Their concern for Kyle, who's being manipulated by the Black Pearl, drives their actions and the plot. On to the villains then. So Domina Pearl, known as the Black Pearl, is the scheming character who seeks to control everything at court. On Royce Grieve's death, she assumes the role of regent, kicks Lydia out and starts drugging Kyle to make him compliant. She's impossibly old, something she achieves with magic in her secret room of mirrors, where she also brews arcane potions and where she renews her body. She's not exactly a magician, she's more of an opportunist who's learnt to use magic to her advantage. But she is one of the two magical characters in the story, the other being Mag's sorceress. And there are some minor villains that participate in the courtly stuff, including an attempt on Dukon's life, but they're fairly incidental. The other characters of note though are the sorceress Fay, Kyle Greve, and his tutor Camas Earl. Now, Fay exists on the edge of Ombria's past. She she wears other people's faces and she fashions magical spells for anyone who pays, including the assassins who want Duke Ungrieve dead, and also for Domino Pearl herself. Fay's very old and not really human, she doesn't really have or understand human emotions. Although she does in fact feel something for Mag who isn't a waxling actually. She's a normal human she, who was left on Fay's doorstep as an infant. And Kyle Grieve uh, isn't really developed much as a character at all. Uh, he's a child who is totally the victim in all of this, having just lost his dad and then being cut off from Lydia and Dukon. His tutor Camas Earl is really interesting though. and He's this scholar of Ombria and its shadow city or underworld. And he's Positioned as a confidant to Domino Pearl, but at the same time, he aids the protagonist as well. What he really cares about is understanding the past, and there's a point where he seeks out Sorceress Faye so she can show him a way into Ombria's shadow past, where he promptly gets lost. At the end of the book, he's the one who's figured out the magical plot and Yukon's role in everything. He's not really good or evil, he's aloof and selfish. Really, he's kind of like a magician not really concerned about human intrigues, except as a means to an end, which is to further his understanding about Ombria's history. All right, so on to the plot. The opening is the Prince of Ombria is dead, leaving his son Kyle to the clutches of the Black Pearl, who swiftly asserts her will as regent, casting out Lydia and manipulating Dukon, who is the only other candidate for the regency. Uh, And by saying that if he opposes her politically, it's Kyle who'll suffer and Mag's watching in the background as all of this unfolds. So our three point-of-view characters are initially following separate threads of the same plot, and they've all been thrust into this very tense, energetic situation. What brings them together, after they, they all act on their age agency for a bit, is the assassination attempt on Duke and Grieve. And there's a scene early in the book where duke approached by the political rivals of the Black Pearl other families who are jockeying for position in the um, line of succession, who say, you should be regent, we can get rid of the Black Pearl. And that sounds pretty good, doesn't it? Until they also threaten Kyle's safety if he doesn't get in with their plot, which is this neat and horrible dilemma that he's suddenly thrust into. So he inevitably refuses, more or less. He's, He's occasionally a little bit passive, but he basically doesn't fancy aligning with either side. So one of the families who wear the sign of the manticore plot his death. I should say at this point that the Black Pearl doesn't want him dead uh, because Dukon's relationship with Kyle is keeping the young prince compliant. Uh, he can only be drugged so much, otherwise he still needs a bit of human contact and that's where Dukon comes in. So really, the Black Pearl just wants Dukon under her thumb. So they engage with the sorceress Fey to make a, a magical piece of charcoal laced with poison. But also incorporated into this thing is is not simply a toad's poison, it's also some of the dreams of past Ombria, which means it draws particularly interesting images, and Dukon finds it addictive to use, which means he uses it more, and so poisons himself more. Also, his drawings come to life. One of them is a sketch of an older version of himself, who then appears on the streets, and he pursues this character but never catches up. And eventually he's stumbling through the streets close to death, and then, at this point, he seems to fall into the underworld. So this quote comes at the end of chapter 11. He had no idea where he was going. Streets he had known all his life looked suddenly unfamiliar. He could no longer understand language. When the pain ran through him again, finding its way into every vein and the marrow of his bones, he finally saw the cool silvery eyes turn back to look at him. Then he closed his own eyes and fell through a sunken window into nowhere. Now, this also hints at the relationship between the past and death that I mentioned earlier. Anyway, it draws the characters together. Firstly, Mag's been frantically looking for Dukon, knowing that her mistress fashioned the charcoal, and which, which was not out of malice, it was simply a business transaction, but she did still fashion the, the killing charcoal. And at the same time, Lydia has sought out the sorceress for advice, so she and Fay find Dukon face down in an abandoned building, a load of rubbish. Uh, this is, so literally, he's fallen down from the world above into the underworld. Now, whether he's just blundered into this derelict building, which is one way of reading it, or if he's just, he's actually fallen into the Shadow City, which I prefer, uh, it's not exactly sure. I, I like the latter. Now, Fay gives Dukon the antidote to a poison which comes from her pet toad. Uh, because it suits her to save his life, just as it previously suited her to take the commission to end it. And now all the characters are together, they can start to make plans to infiltrate the castle. I should say one thing I really like about this novel is that the three principal characters all have agency. They're all aware they're in a grim situation and they're always thinking about ways forward. So separated, they've been pursuing their own method of what they think will be the best solution. And now that they're together, they have a, a renewed purpose. So Lydia gets her disguise, a magical disguise so she isn't recognised at court. Mag blends into the background with the castle staff and Dukon plays the part of being under the Black Pearl's thumb. More than anything, this deception and this organisation makes me think of a bank heist. So the climax of the story involves the characters penetrating the Black Pearls inner sanctum and learning the source of her magic. And this happens whilst the palace is in uproar with various political factions drawing sword against each other and against the Black Pearl's guard. Lydia finds and revives Kyle, and Dukon discovers his own past and the magic behind his own drawings. Drawings which have focused more and more on the dark heart of the city, the Shadow City. And in the end, evil is vanquished. This is a fairy tale, could it be any other way? Uh, But more importantly, both sides of the magical plot have been investigated and we finally have answers to the nature of the Shadow City and the Black Pearl's longevity. All in all, this is a really well-paced fantasy tale, which you can read twice in the time it would take to read the first volume of any given modern trilogy. And honestly, it deserves reading twice. Uh, it's, It's only February, but this may be the best novel I've read this year. main question is, what can we take from the novel to build our fantasy city, seeing as that we're looking specifically at fantasy city building? Now here's what we've discussed over the last couple of episodes. We've had cities of uncertain dimensions, cities unfixed in time and space, cities built on magical foundations, liminal spaces with magical potential where the skin of the world is thin, and I think all of these descriptions apply to Ombria, but what Ombria does is it has a whole separate world beneath, clearly separated from the world above. And of course, you can apply this metaphor to more than just fantasy genre, where whenever you have a subculture that has an element of gatekeeping, uh, you know, like a criminal underworld or political elites or something like that, but I'm just going to talk about the actual separate shadow city, which ties together a lot of these concepts. So let's say you have a shadow world adjacent to your normal world. You have to decide how these two worlds interact. So I've divided them into three types. Type 1 is two wholly separate environments. That is, there are various entry points in the world above that can be used to access the world below and get back. But aside from these entry points, there's no relationship between the map of the world above and the shadow map. Type 2 is there are some locations shared between the city and the shadow. Think of Neil Gaiman's Neverwhere, where the real world locations are occasionally occupied by magic, like uh, HMS Belfast for the second floating market. And then type three is the interstice uh, that is a separate space in the second city existing between two spaces in the first, you know, tessellated like an Escher drawing. So, a uh, prime example is China Merville's The City in the City, where Bessel and Nulcoma occupy the same space. And these concepts can be mixed and matched. Neverwhere arguably includes types 1 and 2, and the city in the city includes types 2 and 3, because it's got cross-hatched areas where Bezel and are actually intersect. And these distinctions matter as far as communicating the idea of how the spaces fit together. Uh, but really, the method of writing them down stays the same. Um, so next let's talk about moving between these two cities. You now we accept that we have a bunch of crossing points on our map where the shadow world sticks to the real world. There are three versions related to the three types I just listed and the first one is just a door or some other entrance to the dungeon. This is Narnia or Labyrinth and the only relationship between where you just left and where you arrived is the door you passed through. It works in a city for the I walk down a strange alley and now I'm in a totally different place kind of plot. And the second is kind of like flipping a switch. Uh, you were in a familiar place, let's say Trafalgar Square, and then suddenly, whilst the dimensions of the space are exactly the same, the details change. Uh, let's say that Nelson's column suddenly becomes an obelisk and the lines are now griffins and there are lots of people who were previously not visible and there are airships in the sky. Um... And this is more like Neverwhere or or The Invisibles or The Gauntlet in The World of Darkness where the weird features are there, they're just being ignored. And the third one is that there's no concealment and no door, there's just like this shared space. And if you know how to, you can just walk into the other city and this is the city in the city. I think in all of these, uh, you can argue how similar one is to the other. Uh, And I think the common denominator is just how aware the characters are. And the question is, is that being them being magically attuned or observant or open-minded? Then we get on to the question of, what is the cost of crossing over into the other world? I'm going to go on a tangent slightly. I've played a lot of World of Darkness and The Umbra has always been one of the ideas I liked best, in principle. The idea of the gauntlet, um, how you have Chantries in other places outside normal space and time, and the idea that space and the planets uh, is a technocratic lie. I, I love all of that. But I have a couple of complaints. The first complaint I have is that what the spirit world looks like isn't clear. And these are questions you still see on forums. You know, what does the Umbra look like? Uh, Can you see people's souls? Does your body come with you? And you might think these answers are obvious if you're a big fan of the World of Darkness. Um, But you should know that the idea of the Penumbra, I first noticed it in the Book of Worlds, and that's the 18th supplement for Mage. It happens after the printing of the second edition. Still, it's an important enough concept that it was then included in the Sorcerer's Crusade and in third edition. So, um, And it, it makes visualizing what the umbra looks on the other side so much easier the second complaint i have in mage at least is crossing over to the umbra in mage is a power that some people have and other people don't and this annoys me slightly because if interacting with the spirit world matters for your plot then you're excluding several players and if it doesn't matter to your plot then some people have just wasted their character points and That's kind of a mage problem rather than a werewolf problem. I like the way that in werewolf, everyone can do it to a lesser or greater extent. And so everyone has the same view of the Umbra. I think it's a much tighter game for that reason. Uh, It has its own problems, of course, see Page XX. Now the the third issue I have is that, um, this may sound weird, but it it doesn't cost enough to get into the spirit world. So my argument is, if it doesn't cost you anything to step sideways, it's just a die roll. um, Why even bother separating the real world from the spirit world? Uh, It's kind of like, I I feel like it, I feel about this the same way I feel about um, awareness roles and perception roles and spot hidden roles being required to advance the plot in Call of Cthulhu. I think, you know, there, there are counter arguments, but that's how I feel. Um, now you could also argue that, well, there is a cost in, in crossing over in werewolf. Uh, you need to make a gnosis roll. Um, but that's not, that's not a cost. That's just a pass fail. That's permission. Um, or you might get attacked by pattern spiders. That's not a cost. Um, it's not a transaction to do with crossing over. It's like, it's a potentially a consequence of taking an action. Not the same. So in thinking about all of these and sort of taking those as lessons learned for, how to portray crossing over to the magical city, Uh, I've I've considered these rules. Uh, First of all, obviously, have a clear view of what the other side looks like, easy enough. And secondly, don't exclude anyone from attempting the journey to the other side. If it's a big deal about the setting, you want everybody to be able to interact with it. And the third one is, make it cost something to cross over. Otherwise, the decision to cross over doesn't really have a lot of weight. Uh, I understand that in poker, it, there's no point in playing poker if you don't pay for real money, if you don't play for actual cash. And I, I kind of think it's maybe that that's what needs to be done. You need a, an actual stake. So then what do I mean by a cost of crossing over? It is something you pay to get across. Uh, it's not the potentially adversarial situation on the other side, you know, you don't know what's going to happen there. Um, here are some examples of what a cost might be. The simplest one is you pay a point of fatigue or willpower or hit points or whatever. The second one uh, is you upset the authorities, you know, like breach in the city and the city. So you actually get a black mark against your, um, your criminal record or something like that. And maybe you count the number of crossings you have to make before the authorities take notice. That would work if somebody is actually observing people crossing and there's an authority you have to appeal to. Uh, another option is uh, you have to be close to death, like when Dukon falls into the underworld. Yeah, that's kind of difficult to engineer that on a regular basis, but it could happen. Um, you could sacrifice something. It could be a physical object. It could be something spiritual. Um, an example is Richard Mayhew in Neverwhere. Uh, and he basically he crosses over into magical London by being forgotten by his old life. So he has actually sacrificed something. And it looks like something's been taken away, but it is an exchange. Um, then uh, another thing, uh, you leave something behind, uh, which is like a sacrifice. If it's a resource, you can't draw anymore. more. Um, but it could also be a thread that runs back to the world above, as it were. Um And the last thing is you have to establish a permanent relationship with something on the other side first. So a pact of some sort. Um, Now riffing off this, I thought about a dungeoneering model where all the dungeoneers have friends and family who they need to support and who help them to recover when they're, they're back from the dungeon. So they need to keep going back into the underworld or the dungeon to do their job. But in order to get into the underworld, they have to establish a link to that world which could be an entity or a manifestation and acknowledgement of their fear. And as they do more and more and more jobs, uh, this link gets stronger and it weakens the family bonds that oblige them to do this dangerous work in the first place. So at some point they, they either have to call it quits because the next job is going to shred what remains of their life, or they totally give into the darkness and turn their back on their family, which is a nice metaphor for corporate employment moving on then um the last topic i want to talk about is mapping now thinking about cities generally um i think you have to have some kind of player facing map at least to sell the idea of the city to the players you know that there are several districts that there's an inside the city and an outside otherwise just with the theater of the mind stuff it's just a load of topologically connected nodes and and that might be how you actually keep track of the city but you want you, you want to sort of present the idea that it is the city and it is a sort of teaming community with lots of different locations. So um thinking about how to map the city and then the shadow city together, this is my proposal. Let's say that the world above is a traditional static map. Doesn't change. Um you might not have a lot of details there, at least down there, because you're filling in the blanks, um, and you've just got a sort of a general overview, bird's eye view of everything. But the players know where they are with this map. Uh, they know where the high level features are. They can pin points on the map where they say, "Oh, I, I know about these different locations. This is where we've already explored, and where our adventure hooks are." Um, and then, and and you can represent that as a traditional hex map or you could do a topological map. You could do stacks of index cards. And you're also going to represent the entry and exit points to the underworld, the shadow city. But when it comes to the underworld, you could just have an identical map for the shadow city. If you say, oh, it maps one to one. You could have a different city uh, with non-linear relationship between distances, between one entry point to another. You could randomize where the entry points connect. However, I'm taking cues from and Shadow, and I like this idea better. My idea is the Shadow City needs to be magical and uncertain to contrast with the solid and unchanging city above. So what I'm going to propose is using the absolutely brilliant Corpathium tool, which I mentioned in the Vericonium episode. So I'm going to link again in the show notes, and I recommend you check it out. Um, It is a tool where you roll a handful of dice, typically seven polyhedral dice, uh, and plus a bunch more d20s check those against a table and use that to build your district and it also builds a topological map by using the vertices of the dice to point to other dice it's really really neat and elegant and it's it's kind of sort of this dynamic almost, bit, bit like same philosophy as a drop table except it, it is the map I've got a couple of modifications to propose though uh, this is how I would implement it so first thing Every time the party enters the Underworld, you roll the dice to determine which locations are present and their relationship to the others, and you draw this as your topological map, uh, and you might have some rules that you want to pick out. Um, for example, in Corpathium, the fog walk always replaces the bottom die. Whatever, whatever the number on the die, it's always going to be the fog walk. This is the furthest. I'm not sure if they use compass points further south, but I think that's the point. Um, I would say, though, that rather than implying these locations are north, south, east and west, um, I'd read them as top to bottom. So the idea is the ones furthest the top of whatever map you draw are closest to the entry points from the city above. And then obviously then you have a progression downwards. So you've got to decide what what this, um, the very bottom is going to be. And that could usefully be a, um, an unchanging feature uh, for example, if you remember the description of the plane underneath the the empty space underneath the city in rats and gargles, where' sort of where they look out over the plane and six miles down there's this plane, eventually, if you go down far enough, you get to a space like that. Yeah, that could be an example. So next, each die has a number, and in the tool, uh, you check the number against a single table and then that tells you what district that die represents. But I propose modifying this a bit to have one bespoke table per die type. Uh, so, for example, you, your d6 has entries for the Temple District, the Twin Nests, and the Artist Quarter. You know, one to two, three to four, five six. Um, But you also have entries on that table which are higher than the maximum number that you could roll. And this is because when you roll, you're going to apply the current level of unrest in the city, and unrest. Uh, which you could also call chaos, going back to um, uh, dishonoured, is um, unrest is a number that increases as the political tensions increase and the tyrannical ruling class impose more more horrible uh, measures upon the populace, or you know they're they're subjected to more violence in the streets or whatever. Um, there's the the inference in Umbra in that um, that as the Black Pearl becomes more and more of a tyrant those effects filter down into the city, and they should be reflected in the underworld as well. So these additional table entries are for the same locations, but they're changed owing to the increase in chaos. So by that I mean that, let's say, on your D6 roll, the Temple District is 1 and 2, and it's, it's, a, it's as normal uh, as normally stated on a typical roll. But if you roll an 8+, plus, say 8, 9, and 10, is the temple district at the next level of chaos or unrest? So you have a slightly different description for it. Um, isn't it what's an example? Um, okay, the Rookery of Van Moldus at noon is normally described as idle cutthroats, eager gamblers, strangers slinking between houses and alley. Uh, but the high chaos version could be... Um, Disease gangs openly crash in the streets, rats fatten on corpses in the sun. So let's also say that you are keeping track of the places the players have visited with index cards. On each visit to the underworld, not all of the locations they've been to will be accessible again, but you keep a record of where they've been and you just have a bunch of index cards. Let's say that they visit the place again and suddenly it's changed. You flip that index card to the High Chaos version and you have the alternative description on the back. So you could have a whole bunch of pre-prepared, laminated cards that you just dish out at the table and say, this is the place where you are. Um, or maybe, maybe you have those as just a hook into the wider description, but something as a marker on the table to tell the players that in the underworld they are in this location. And the last point about mapping is the need to ha- need to travel to and from the underworld somehow. Um, they can do that voluntarily or they can do that involuntarily. Say so if they're close to death, they might just slip into the underworld already. But the portals that they use, let's say they, they want to seek out a portal, uh, they might be static and stay reliably in the same place on the map. But alternatively, uh, they could move around randomly. They could be a random walk that they take, a lot like Neverwhere's floating market. And finally, they could phase in and out of existence. Uh, let's say there's a magical tide or something to do with the phases of the moon that means some gateways are open at some times. So that's what I would do. I think the next creative thing for developing the city is probably going to be repurposing and possibly simplifying the corpathium tool bit. Um, but I again, I urge you to look at it because it, it is really a work of genius. Uh, and I think I, I need to contact the author and say how good it is uh, because it, it deserves praise. LastGaspGrimoire.com, I believe, is the is the URL. With that, I'm going to talk in the last segment about further reading. The dual City is a staple of urban and primary world fantasy, so there are plenty of examples to draw from. And I've already mentioned Neil Gaiman's Neverwhere and China Meoville's The City of the City. I'm going to hold off on a discussion of China Mewville because I think that work deserves its own episode, uh, not least because he has a thing about cities. So my recommendations instead are mostly comics, Uh, And I'm going to start with another Neil Gaiman title, which is A Tale of Two Cities from the Sandman World's End collection. This is a story about someone who has a fairly ordinary life and spends their spare time exploring their city and discovering new places. And one day he sees something interesting down an alley, uh, and he walks down there and finds himself in a totally different city. And the trains are different, the buildings are different, uh, landmarks have changed, etc. And... He explores this new place and meets other people who have walked there and are similarly entranced by the city and also uh, kind of trapped, but willingly. He also meets both Morpheus and Death, and both of these encounters fill him with a kind of dread. Um, in particular, when he meets Death, he declines her hand and, and intuits that something terrible is going to befall him. And I, I assume the inference is that, you know, his time has come and she's going to walk him to the next life Um and he gets back into the world, real world, he, he flees and uh, then stumbles back into the familiar world, looking haggard and dishevelled with a lot of beard growth. The story concludes with uh, the idea that where he was, was a um, was the dream of a city. And this horrifies him because it begs the question, uh, you know, what if the city wakes up? And two things are neat about this story. And first is the idea about walking into a totally different world, which... I've talked about that enough in this episode so far. Um, but the other is the dream city as a single entity and the consequences of it waking up. What does that mean? Would it spill out into the real world? Well, that—that you know, that is the thing that you should fear if it does wake up. Uh, if it did sp- spill out, does that mean that the gods of that city, the Endless, would walk freely amongst humans? And the ending of Rats and Gargoyles uh, has that kind of ending that the um, that the gods start to walk amongst mortals. And that's a pretty upbeat ending because it involves tearing down walls and the end to secrets and everybody on a more even footing. Uh, But it could just as easily be an apocalyptic event like um, Lovecraft's Nyarlathotep. On to the second item then, which is Mark Miller's Wanted. And this has mostly nothing to do with cities. However, it does have things to do with alternative timelines and different states and different perceptions. Uh, What happens is in the last episode, I think, when Wesley finally meets his father, the original killer, his father gives him this monologue. And the context is that um, Wesley uh, is part of the fraternity and what they've done is they've got rid of uh, the superheroes basically by a combination of technology, magic, mass hypnosis, I'm, I'm not sure exactly how it is so that a lot of superheroes actually believe that they are actors who once played superheroes so the world's got darker and it's controlled by supervillains. villains but when he meets his father he finds out the reason his father abandoned him and his past as the world's greatest assassin um he gives this monologue the sky was so blue in those days wesley The trees were deeper green than you can possibly imagine, and the food was so rich and tasty compared to the shit you eat today. There was a moment we almost didn't go ahead with that revolution we'd been planning. A moment we didn't want to let things go all grim and gritty. But it was only for a moment. Some of us had spent half of our adult lives in jail, and the heroes were getting so good at what they did, we had to strike. What if this was our final opportunity?' Two million people died around the world in those terrible weeks, but I made sure you and your mum were safe. Even when the others were building that enormous machine people refer to as the Empire State Building, I was back at your building watching over you both. It was the perfect plan. What better way to keep control than making everyone forget that there had ever been a revolution? So obviously overtones of Kaiser Soze there as well. This is the idea of a timeline shift where only a few people are aware that there ever was an alternate timeline. Um, Now, Ombria's shadow is all about the city's past. But what if the shadow city represents a divergent timeline and for some reason the city above changed some time in its past as a consequence of the divergence? So you could visit the shadow city and check out the other timeline because, because both of those places in the shadow city, those alternate timelines, they are actual locations you could visit. And you can have the same location and invert it in ways. I'm mean, thinking about this further. The conflict in Warren Ellis' planetary comes from an alternate dimension of superheroes plotting an invasion of our universe. And you could scale that down to city scale and have a similar plot. Um, the second Viraconium novel, A Storm of Wings, you basically have an insect civilization supering and itself over Veraconium as a form of invasion where it establishes its own city. Okay, moving on, the third and final comic title is The Invisibles, uh, one of my favourite comics of all time, Uh, specifically the arc down and out in heaven and hell, which is right at the start in issues two, three and four. Dane McGowan is going through a magical awakening, and in the first issue he's a delinquent who's been uh, stuck in this facility called Harmony House, rescued by the Invisibles, and then abandoned in London. So he starts issue two, Homeless, And he meets a character called Tom Bedlin, who's another invisible and magician, who helps him awaken. It's an awakening story. And he does this by helping Dane cross over into magical London. So the method they use, I understand, is scraping off blue mould on the wall of an abandoned tube station and smoking it. And when he crosses over, he sees additional features and people like monuments that weren't there before, or airships flying overhead and ghosts of the past and, and... various other features. Some of it is Tom pointing out that the city is already strange and magical. Uh, There are already people talking in mystic ways at Speaker's Corner, if you stop to listen to them. There's a pyramid on top of Canary Wharf. But the other interesting thing that Tom says is about cities themselves. Here it is, as I was told it once, old but new-minted with each fresh telling. Our world is sick, boy. Very sick. A virus got in a long time ago, and we've got so used to its effects we've forgotten what it was like before we became ill. I'm talking about cities, see? Human cultures were originally homeostatic. They existed in self-sustaining equilibrium with no notions of time and progress like we've got. Then the city virus got in. No one's really sure where it came from or who brought it to us. But like all viral organisms, it's, its one directive is to use up all available resources in producing copies of itself. More and more copies until there's no raw material left and the host body, overwhelmed, can only die. The cities want us to become good builders. Eventually, we'll build rockets and carry the virus to other worlds. Cities have their own way of talking to you. Catch sight of the reflection of a neon sign and it'll spell out a magic world that summons strange dreams. Have you never seen the word Ixat glowing in the night? That's one of the holy names. Or make tape recordings of traffic noise and listen to them all night. You'll hear the voices of the city coming through, telling you things, showing you pictures. Sometimes they'll show you where they came from. In waking dreams, I've seen cemetery planets circling abandoned stars, like mausoleums, silent and dead, every building a headstone. That's what cities do. But those of us who know the secret... Earn ways to unlock the power in cities. We make a pact with them and they give us gifts in return. It's very unknown, armies, isn't it? I mean, it's very Mage of the Ascension as well. Well, I'm putting it in context though. This was on 93, 94, and Mage of the Ascension was 1991. And I actually ran an Invisibles campaign for Mage, which turned out nothing like the story, but I nicked some elements. Not as much as the Matrix nicked all the elements out of the Invisibles. I mean, as that particular page I was just looking at, it's it's not just the concept of humankind sleeping and being controlled by a greater force. It's actually there's there's some images that look like the massive um, battery cities that the machines build to hold humans in. Anyway, I digress. Um, Morrison also uses the idea of parasitic cities later in Marvel Boy uh, uh, where he has a parasitic corporation that infects entire planets it lands, it replicates itself and then it develops technology to fly to other worlds and infects those but anyway, The Invisibles is kind of a, a punkier version of Neverwhere which uh, which actually predates by a couple of years um, but still, you access the magical city by having your eyes opened so interacting with the shallow city is a matter of awareness I have one other media mention I want to make, which is the Night Watch and Daywatch films, um, where the others can access their version of the Umbra called the gloom. Uh, in the second film, uh, Svetlana chases Anton Sanjegor into the gloom and manages to penetrate into what I think is the second level of the gloom, and it's something that Anton can't do. So, Yegor uh, and Svetlana cross the threshold into what is the equivalent of the deeper Umbra, and Anton's left behind. It's like he's come up against a glass wall. Um... So the first level is a lot like the penumbra. It, it looks like our world, and it's but it's uh, got these moats. I think it's got lots of flies uh, buzzing around. The second level is less distinctly like our world. It's like this urban wasteland that's full of trash and and uh, totally deserted um, and. Uh, you know sort of toned in sepia so it's kind of as it gets further away from the real world things start to disintegrate and that's kind of the way I visualized Ombre's Shadow City as well Um, near the surface it's all kind of it it has forms as it goes further back uh, the underworld gets more confused and forms get more distorted you know overgrown or decaying or collapsing like soggy cardboard So last thought about all these ideas. We talked about parasitical cities. What if the shadow city was was an invading force or a parasite or something else that shouldn't really be here in this world? What if it's actually the enemy of the city above? And going back to Viraconium, what if the shadow city was uh, normally, yes, it was a... It was the remnants of human civilization and our history, but that had somehow become invaded. So right at the core of everything, right at the bottom, in the deep, it's not human history at all. Um, An alien insectile race has colonized it, and they've chewed up all of the human dream city matter there and regurgitated it into their own wasp hive, uh, metaphysical wasp hive of some sort that is consistent, actually, with some of Vericonium. We know that in the end, it suggested that the Barclay brothers who fell to Earth, they were part of an alien race, who decided to travel back in time to live in a better age. So that's it, I think, for this episode. If you've enjoyed it, please like, share and subscribe. Now, if you want to read more stuff, um, I am now writing the occasional tiny letter. So, if you want to read that stuff and it gets archived on Tiny Letter, just go to www.fictoplasm.net and look for the Tiny Letter sign-up page. That's pretty much where I'm going to write news about forthcoming episodes, ongoing RPG projects, ideas, uh, expand on concepts, and um, take feedback if you want to reply. Music for this podcast, by the way, is by Chris Zabriskie, as always find out more in the show notes which will have links to his site and his complete catalogue thanks for listening